This episode of TGC's Word of the Week is sponsored by Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Midwestern's 81-hour residential Master of Divinity degree offers a complete foundation for a lifetime of fruitful ministry. For more information, visit mbts.edu mdiv. You see, you might have thought that God had lost, that things were such a mess, it could never be recovered. Evidence of that recovery, evidence of God's success, is in the existence of the church. This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, Proof That God Will Win, was preached by Trevor Johnston at All Saints Belfast in Northern Ireland on May the 6th, 2018. The text is Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. Listen now to Trevor Johnston on Proof That God Will Win. A few days ago, I wondered if the person you know or your friend said to you, may the force be with you. Now, I know there are some Church of Ireland people in here you might be tempted to send also with you. Please don't. May the force be with you. May the 4th is Star Wars Day. The start of every Star Wars film. A very, very clever start to each of those films because our mind is drawn with those opening credits. In fact, not just the opening credits, it's got a proper name. The opening crawl, the words crawl up the screen, as you know, the screen of the cinema, the screen of the television. The opening crawl lifts our minds to a different place, to a different reality. But of course, the story is told in retrospect, isn't it? Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's how the Star Wars films start. Our minds are lifted. We think of another world. This one, the Star Wars world, is one of make-believe, of fiction, of fantasy, of Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan Kenobi, of R2-D2, of Darth Vader. Darth Vader, so on and so forth, a different kinds of species. George Lucas, of course, that cross, as he once said, between a Buddhist and a Methodist, brings us to imagine a world of peace, out of disharmony, of harmony, out of war, of good, out of evil. That's the world of Star Wars, that he wants us to lift our minds Actually, the world that he was looking for, or the world that he ought to have created, was the world we just read about in Revelation chapter 7. This great picture, not from something of the past, but of the future. This vision that Jesus gave the Apostle John to encourage the Christians who are suffering intense persecution is one of a world to come. And what do we find? Well, have a look. Page 1, 2, 3, 8. Page 1, 2, 3, 8. Revelation chapter 7. When we start thinking about the church, we've got to start at the end. What is the ultimate goal, the ultimate vision of God for his church? What will it, is it decline? Is it death? Is it the encroaching secularism, extinguishing any kind of last vestige of a religious Victorian past? Well, listen to these words. Verse 9, chapter 7 of Revelation, page 1, 2, 3, 8. Listen to this dream. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude 
that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When you think of church, you might think of that boring R or R in 20 minutes, depending who's preaching. You might think of that. That might be your vision, your understanding of church. But actually, that's not really where God is going with his church. Where is God going with his church? Well, it is here. Chapter 7, verse 9. The stats tell us things are being squeezed. Well, have a look. Verse 9. After this, I looked, and what? There before me was a great multitude. Think of a big crowd that no one could count. Think of an innumerable great crowd. No one, even standing with a clicker at the door or taking the numbers at the turnstiles, could ever actually count this number. An incredible, beyond imagining number of people. That's God's church. Is that your understanding of the church? Well, it's God's vision for the church. This is where he is heading. An innumerable throng. Look at the makeup of that throng. Verse 9. From, well, just clearly the Christian religious countries, isn't it? Well, no. Every nation. Every tribe on a macro scale nation. Think of the nations. Think how nation was understood for those who first read these words. Nation was understood as everyone other than the Jews. Every nation. Macro scale. Micro scale, every tribe. Big picture. Little picture. Every people. Big picture. Every language. Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. What a diverse, inclusive group of people. Isn't that, aren't those the, the words of our culture? You must be inclusive. Bring equality. You must be thoroughly representative. I actually think these words and God's vision for his church subversively fulfills the religious creed of the Western and secular worlds. This dream, God's vision for his church, we got to start in heaven. we got to see the end. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice. Now you can imagine if you had got that number of people, you've got kind of people with different color complexions, outlooks, languages, tribal distinctions. You can imagine it would be chaos in heaven. All of these people with different perspectives and different ideas and different forms and means and so on and so forth. But what are they doing? Look at verse 10. There's a common creed. And it is this. We sang it actually at the start of this morning. And they cried out. There's a bit of passion. They cried out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is where we start when we talk about the church. That is the end point. This 
incredible, innumerable throng, completely representative of all the people groups, potential people groups, language groups. So there will be those who, first language is Ulster Scots. There'll be those whose first language is Gaelic, Irish Gaelic. There'll be those who speak Tigrinian from northeastern Ethiopia. Gaius, southwestern Ethiopia. There'll be those for whom a common language is anything but common. Those whom you knew and loved, whose trust was in Jesus Christ, will be there. This common language, this incredible scene, this Wow, common creed that salvation belongs to our God. That is where we start when we think about the church, this dream. But of course, this dream has emerged from something of a nightmare, hasn't it? I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians. It's a few books earlier, page 1174, page 1174. And as you're finding that, I'm going to read another bit from the very first book of the Bible. We've gone to the end. We're now going to go to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. Listen to these words. As you're finding Ephesians chapter 2, let me read these words. This was after God had created everything, but human beings decided no God. Listen to what God says to human beings. The Lord God, verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has become now like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden, cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That's the backdrop, the beginning backdrop. Human beings rebel against their loving, rightful creator, rightful ruler, loving creator. They say, no, not your rule, our rule. As a result of that, we're banished from the garden, and we haven't gotten back since. You're in Ephesians chapter 2, page 1174. The dream of the innumerable throng in heaven comes out of this nightmare. This nightmare of rebellion against God. This nightmare of banishment. This nightmare of exclusion. Ephesians chapter 2, page 1174. Listen to what that nightmare really was in actual fact, the reality. Verse 1, as for you, Ephesians, everyone, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Of course you were because you said no to God. Of course you were because you were banished. Of course you were because you did not have access any longer to the tree of life. Indeed, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course you are dead in transgression and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the earth, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is the world. This is you and me. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. 
Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Do you see that? Do you see that? By nature, objects of wrath. Wow. It's properly a nightmare, isn't it? It's properly a catastrophe, properly a disaster for human beings. We live in a moral universe, of course. Try to deny that. Some do, unsuccessfully. Our rebellious nature actually brings God's wrath, God's anger, focused on us. See that in the latter bit of verse 3. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. It's a mess, isn't it? It's a complete disaster. We've all failed. Verse 4. Always look out for the buts in the Bible. The buts and the howevers. The small words. Those almost inconsequential words. Which sometimes don't get the attention of the pens of the translators. But this is a big but, isn't it? Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. A complete nightmare, a complete mess. The spiritual reality for us is that we're dead. Nature by nature, objects of God's wrath. That's not a good place to be, is it, really? But God does something. He sends Jesus. Look at the character of God, verse 4. We have God's wrath, verse 3. It's impossible, isn't it, to divide those two things. God's wrath, God's mercy, verse 3. Verse 4. They're beside each other in the mind, the thinking process of Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote these words for us. Objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order that the coming ages might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Out of the ashes of the nightmare comes what? Comes salvation. Comes rescue. Comes being raised up. Verse 4, comes salvation. Sorry, verse 6. Comes salvation. Verse 5. Always with the future in mind. Do you see that? Chapter 2, verse number 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Always, always there's a future. Always there's an eye towards some kind of, wow, revelation or some kind of, well, you see this. 
Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The future is in the mind of Paul. Always this work of God, those who are dead, now being made alive, being raised with Christ, in order to show, to demonstrate, in the future, down the line, God's incredible kindness. The incredible dream and vision of Revelation chapter 7 comes out of the nightmare of Genesis chapter 3 and outlined really clearly, specifically for us in Ephesians chapter 2. Why? Why? Why bother God? Why do you bother? Why'd you do all this stuff? Even why did you send Jesus? We were dead. Why'd you just leave us be? I mean, that would have been fair on God, wouldn't it? Just leave us be, God. Well, have a look into chapter three, and we've said some of these and thought some of these things before. What is the church's purpose? God draws together these people, this innumerable throng, with that single song, so to speak. Salvation belongs to our God. Why does God do all of this? Well, it is to demonstrate, demonstrate God's victory. That God is one. Chapter 3. Ephesians is great for getting your mind clear on who we are and who we are as a church. Why we're here. Chapter 3. Surely, verse 2, you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Why is that such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that Paul's job, description should be, make this mystery known. Make this mystery, the content of which is Jew and Gentile are now together. Why is that such a big deal? Well, let's read on. Verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I'm less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. By the way, for Gentiles, read nations. The nations of Revelation chapter 7, every nation, those words that you've seen, Revelation chapter 7, you've heard, whenever you see the word Gentiles here, meaning the same thing. The non-Jews. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, i.e. the Jew and Gentile form one new body, united under Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, which we'll not look at, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, says that God's intention, God's will for everything is that we brought under the rule, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And here we have people, Jew, Gentile, under Jesus Christ. 
for past ages, we're on page 1175 now, for past ages was kept hidden in God who created all things. Verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here is the church. Here is her job description. We've had Paul's job description. We now have the church's job description. And the church's job description is to preach, is to speak, is to declare. Now thinking, yeah, of course, you probably agree with that. Yes, it is. To be salt and light, a witness. But look at the direction of that preaching. Is it the people in that street and that street and that street and in your street? Is that supposed to be the direction of this preaching? Is that the intention of the direction of this preaching? Well, no. And I hope you're slightly stunned as you read verse 10 or shocked. You could still be asleep from the bank holiday, whatever. Verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known where, which direction? Outward? No. Upward. Verse 10, his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities who are in the heavenly realms. Does that not strike you strange? Does that not stop you in your tracks as you're reading it? Does it not make you think, wow, has he got this wrong? Paul got this wrong? Surely it's an outward kind of witness, outward kind of testifying, outward kind of proclaiming. Well, actually, when you realize what he's saying, it makes complete sense. You see, you might have thought, Genesis chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2, that God had lost. God's creation, his creation, had so gone astray, gone awry, that God had failed. That things were such a mess, it could never be recovered. An evidence of that recovery. An evidence of God's success is in the existence of the church. We are, of course, the fruit of this great thing, aren't we? But more of that in coming weeks. The reason the church exists, the reason that as we read Revelation chapter 7 and ought to take courage, that it shapes our vision. The reason that we understand from Paul here in Ephesians chapter 3, the direction of the proclamation is because God is declaring to everyone that he has won. That the rulers and authorities do not have the last word. The rulers and authorities comprising those who in another realm are against God, set up against God. The rulers and authorities who in this particular realm, sphere, are against God. The existence of the church is proof that God is one. That the God who is rich in mercy, who sent Jesus, the God who is full of grace, the God who has wrath towards those who are objects of wrath, has now forgiven. And their status has changed from being an object of wrath 
to being one of Christ's, either Jew or Gentile. And the Jew and the Gentile, the new reality, this is God proving that he is the ruler, the victor, the winner. Why does the church exist? It is because God has won. Why does the church exist? It is to preach the gospel upwardly towards those who deny the rightful rule of the creator of the universe. And when you read verse 12 and 13, let's have a look of chapter 3 of Ephesians. In him, Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through him, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for which you, sorry, I apologize, because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. We'll not do it now, but when you flick to Ephesians chapter 6, that really well-known passage that talks about spiritual warfare. Yes, there's flesh and blood that we fight, that Christian fights, but Paul's focus in terms of spiritual warfare is not the flesh and blood of a physical, earthly fight. Rather, it's a heavenly and spiritual fight. Uh, Just flick over page 1177. This will be our last flicking until we get to Revelation chapter 7 where we'll finish. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, page 1177, right-hand column. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's struggles. Sorry, against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is your battle. And the existence of the church is a proclamation to those, what is it, rulers, authorities, powers of dark with this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The existence of the church is God saying, I've won. We'll finish in Revelation chapter 7 once more. Page 1238. Revelation 7, page 1238. This is the church. Now, there are a couple of technicalities. This is the church in heaven. This is the church triumphant. We are the church on earth engaged in this great battle. But God is one. Page 1238, right-hand column, Revelation chapter 7, small number 13. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them clean in the, sorry, made them white. I apologize, in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You hear that description 
This is heaven, God's victory. For those who are in Christ, they will be with Christ forever. They will be before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. That was the place, God's location on earth in the Old Testament. For God's people, all of his people, in heaven, there will be that sacrifice and service of God. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. No longer any exclusion, no longer any separation, no longer banishment from the garden. No longer any hunger. Never again, verse 16, will they hunger. Never again, verse 16, will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. How on earth does that work? You can see the way the language of Revelation confuses somewhat. Well, of course, this is all picture language. The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. A lamb who's a shepherd? He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Is that not a body of which you want to be a part? God is victorious. His people have been rescued through the death of Jesus Christ, that lamb's death. Through that death, we have been made new. And we are promised this. So when we start thinking of the church, we need to start at the very end. Here is where God is going. Here is what God has achieved. Here is our vision to understand why we exist here. Why do we pray? Asking God to give us this vision continually that it shapes everything as we approach ourselves. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this incredible vision. We praise you for this vision of people drawn from everywhere. We praise you that this vision proves your victory. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for sending the Lord Jesus out of your great and rich mercy. We thank you that we who were once objects of wrath have been made your children, have received your mercy and your grace, and now we're being built into this new people who will enjoy God forever. We pray that our lives and our minds would be so consumed with this vision that we would serve you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.